Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. And we are off and running for a Monday. Welcome to the Loving Liberty program. Brian Hyde at your service. Well, I had a very interesting memory pop up on uh, my Facebook page today. And it just made me stop and reflect how much has changed in the last three years. I want to share this one with you uh, because three years ago, 2016, about this time, the, uh, the trial of the Bundys was taking place in Oregon. Ammon was on trial. Ryan was on trial, along with, I believe, five other defendants in an Oregon courtroom. And this was the first indicator that we really started to see that uh, that maybe for all of its huffing and puffing and threatening to blow the house down, maybe the feds did not have a real firm grasp on this case. In other words, it wasn't a slam dunk. But you wouldn't know that if you were just going by the uh, either the uh, overreacting federal apparatuses narrative or the uh, hostile press corps and their poisoned narrative. And this this was borne out. I, I had a, a favorite uh, sophist. I count him as a friend, but he was definitely somebody very, uh, very enthusiastic about engaging in sophistry. Well, let me uh, let me offer these uh, justifications for why. You know, the government is going to be right or why you can't possibly have a point here. And by the way, ironically enough, this this post was one that I shared uh, that was originally posted by Rick Kerber, who is going to be sentenced tomorrow in Salt Lake City. We'll be talking about that a little bit more a little bit later on in the program and possibly uh, touching base with Ammon Bundy tomorrow on this, just because uh, that this here's another injustice in in the works. But what Rick posted was a. a an update with a picture of Ammon at the Malheur Wild, Wildlife Refuge. And it said this. It said, awesome. Today in court, something so humble and sincere that you probably have never seen before. As witness Dwayne Schrock, who was a Harney County, Oregon rancher, who was testifying, by the way, for the government. Okay, he was one of the prosecution's witnesses. As he finished his testimonies, he concluded his testimony in the USA versus Ammon Bundy trial. The witness left the stand and walked over to the table where defendant Ammon Bundy was seated and humbly handed him his hat. This is his cowboy hat. Of course, the U.S. Marshals immediately swooped in and took the hat. And as Mr. Schrock left the courtroom, the question was put to him, why did you do that? And his response was, I gave that hat to the only man who deserved it. Now, there are a couple things you can draw from this. And again, with the hindsight, looking back on this from three years down the road. It really goes to show you that uh, sometimes the impossible is possible. And as Rick puts it, once in a while life, once in a while in life, humble statements are witnessed that speak louder than almost all other things. God bless men like Dwayne Schrock and Ammon Bundy. Now, remember, this was a government witness. But when he was on the stand, the prosecution actually had to ask the judge, do you mind if we treat him as a hostile witness? (laughs) It's their own witness. The point here is this. The people who took the time to meet Ammon Bundy, to actually speak with him, 
came away with respect for the man. Even the people who maybe didn't agree with him in the end still came away with the understanding that's a good man right there. And I don't think that gesture of Mr. Schrock uh, handing over his, his cowboy hat to Ammon Bundy there in that courtroom, I don't think that was lost on the jury. Because about two weeks later, the jury came back with a not guilty verdict for all seven of the defendants. Boy, did that make some jaws drop. In fact, to this day, the, the hatred that still exists in some corners of, of Oregon mostly exists among people who only know what they know because of that poisoned narrative that was fed to them by, again, a very hostile press corps and, and fed by an overreactionary federal apparatus. Oh, these are terrorists. These are terrible, terrible people. That's why we charged them with everything to the moon and back. Enough to put them away for several lifetimes. And the jury saw through it. And I say this not wishing that, uh, you know, the government had taken a different approach. I'm happy that they were given more than enough rope to hang themselves. But you realize if, if the feds had just charged Ammon and Ryan and the others with simple trespass, they'd have been convicted. Now, granted, that's just a simple misdemeanor. And, you know, maybe they'd have done a little bit of jail time. I don't know. But instead, they threw everything at them. It's a conspiracy. And, oh, they were undermining the very foundations of civilization. Blah, blah, blah. And the jury looked at it and went, this is overkill. This doesn't fit what happened here. And I think back to Ammon months and months earlier, sitting in jail, being interviewed by a Portland television reporter when he was asked, was it worth it? And Ammon saying with humility, but also with with confidence, and I mean quiet confidence. Yes, as hard as it's been, it was worth it. We know the day will come when we will have our liberty restored to us. And when it happens, he said, there will be no doubt that it was God's hand that caused it to happen. And so it happened. And I still remember the absolute uh, incredible miracle of that not guilty verdict being returned. It was it was very inspiring and it was also very surprising. I don't want to sound like I was a complete doubter. I hoped for the best, but when it actually happened, man, it was like, wow. And then it was off to Nevada. You remember the the big to do. They were acquitted in Oregon. Marcus Mumford demanded, where's the paperwork saying you guys have to still hold him here? Tased by U.S. Marshals, attacked and beat up by U.S. Marshals. Ooh, the feds did not like to lose. They were not happy about that. I think that ended a career or two up there in Oregon. And then it was off to Nevada. And two years ago, we were gearing up for the trial involving the happenings at Bunkerville in 2014. And once again, there was a very strong chance that uh, they, they were going to face years and years in prison, scores of years in prison. And once again, by some miracle... They were delivered. And it started when a government witness messed up on the stand, messed up by told the truth when she didn't uh, think she was going to have to. She inadvertently told the truth and exposed a previous lie and a previous omission of information that should have been provided in discovery by the prosecution, but wasn't 
and the whole house of cards came tumbling down. And come January, yes, I will talk about how I can't believe it's been two years since the miracle in that courtroom. And now the Bundys are home. They're free people. I wouldn't say the situation is totally resolved because, well, their cattle are still out there on land that the federal government says they can't be out there, you know, on that grazing allotment. There's also the matter of three men sitting in prison who really shouldn't be in prison right now. Convicted on technicalities or just bad law. And something needs to be done about that. But this was a very happy memory to see pop up on my Facebook feed, and I wanted to share it with you. And and the, the simple act of this rancher handing his cowboy hat to Ammon Bundy there in the courtroom. I mean, those poor marshals, they're, they're pretty tightly strung to start with, but that, uh, that kind of blew their minds. But it was a very powerful gesture. And it was humble, and it was sincere, and it was heartfelt. And I think it accurately reflected the sentiment of the people who took the time to actually talk to Ammon. Versus the ones who just were spoon-fed this, this poisonous gruel by the media. And that's all they know. I know it sounds like I'm condemning the people who harbor the, the bad feelings. But more than anything, what I'm, I'm sharing this with you to illustrate. If everything you know about a person or about an issue has come through what someone else has told you, particularly through mass media sources... You have to hold out the possibility that maybe my perspective is incomplete or maybe it's somewhat limited and needs to be fleshed out a bit. Whether you change your mind or not, that's up to you. But this is just one of those great reminders that uh, don't underestimate the power of little meaningful things to shift the scales of justice or even to shift the universe in the proper direction. Pretty powerful stuff. All right, we got a lot more to cover, and we will be back in just a few moments. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and you are listening to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. All right, where to begin? There is a lot going on here. Yeah, I think I'm going to start with this one. I don't know if you saw any of the video that uh, came out of London last week about uh, the uh, Extinction Rebellion, but uh, it's, it's pretty weird stuff. I mean, I would have thought maybe it was just, I don't know, some some druid ritual or something. I don't know much about the druids. So if I just offended any druids in the audience, my apologies. But people were uh, out protesting in the street, some of them gluing themselves to the street by way of protest. I think one protester, I saw a picture of a guy who allegedly glued himself to the top of a uh, passenger jet. But there's this unique 
upper middle class death cult that is just going on and on about extinction. And yes, it's it's steeped in the whole climate crisis. Foo for all. And here's what the author of this piece said. This is published in Spiked Online. Brendan O'Neill wrote it. He says, yesterday in London, I witnessed an eerie, chilling sight. He says, I saw a death cult holding a a ceremony in public. The men and women gathered outside King's Cross Station and formed a circle. They swayed and chanted. They preached about end times. What will you do when the world gets hot? What? What? They intoned, conjuring up images of hellfire they believe will shortly consume mankind. They sang hymns to their God. Science. We've got all the science, all that we need to change the world. Hallelujah, they sang, rocking side by side as they did so. They demanded repentance. Buy less, fly less, fry less, said one placard. Catholics only demand the non-consumption of meat on Fridays as an act of penance to mark the day of Christ's death. But this new religion demands an end to meat consumption entirely as penance for mankind's sins of growth and progress. And like all death cultists, they handed out leaflets that contained within them the truth. These leaflets foretell floods and fire. We are in trouble. Sea levels are rising. Africa and the Amazon are on fire. The only word that was missing was locusts. But they can't be far behind with these other ghastly visitations to sinful mankind. Oh, and if you question their truth, then like those heretics who were hauled before the Inquisition 500 years ago, you will be denounced as a denier. A denier of their revelations, a denier of their visions. Denial is not a policy, their placards decreed. Spotting me filming their spooky apocalyptic ceremony, one of the attendees waved that placard in my face. A warning from the cult to a corrupted outsider. This was, of course, Extinction Rebellion. But he says, let us no longer beat around the bush about these people. This is an upper middle class death cult. This is a malarian, millennial, let me try that again. Millenarian movement that might speak of science, but which is driven by sheer irrationalism, by fear, moral exhaustion and misanthropy. This is the deflated, self-loathing bourgeoisie coming together to project their own psychosocial hangups onto society at large. They must be criticized and ridiculed out of existence. Now, he says yesterday's gathering, like so many other Extinction Rebellion greetings, was middle aged and middle class. The commuters heading in and out of King's Cross looked upon them with bemusement. Oh, it's those extinction freaks, I heard one young man say. It had the feel of Hampstead and the home countries descending on a busy London spot to proselytize the cult of eco-alarmism to the brainwashed commuting plebes. It was a gathering to mark Extinction Rebellion's week of disruption. The group was asking people in London and other cities around the world to take two weeks off work and join the revolt against climate and ecological crisis. You can tell who they're trying to appeal to. Working-class people and the poor of New Delhi, Mumbai, and Cape Town, some of the cities in which Extinction Rebellion will be causing disruption, which, of course, cannot afford to take two weeks off work. But then again, these protests aren't for those people. In fact, they're against those people. He says Extinction Rebellion is a reactionary, regressive, and elitist movement whose aim is to impose the most disturbing form of austerity imaginable on the people on people across the world. One of the great ironies of progressive politics today is that people of a leftist persuasion will say it's borderline fascism if the Tory government closes down a library in Wolverhampton. 
but then they'll cheer on this eco-death cult when it demands a virtual halt to economic growth with not a single thought for the devastating, immiserating, and outright lethal impact of such a course of action and what it would have on working and struggling peoples of the world. Extinction Rebellion says mankind is doomed if we do not cut carbon emissions to net zero by 2025. That's six years' time. Think about it. They want us to halt a vast array of human activity that produces carbon. All that Australian digging for coal, all those Chinese factories employing millions of people and producing billions of things used by people around the world. All those jobs in the UK in the fossil fuel industries, all those coal-fired power stations, all that flying, all that driving, cut it back, rein it in, stop it. And the people who rely on these things for their work and their food and their warmth, screw them. They're only humans. Horrible, destructive, stupid humans. He says progressive movements, as the name suggests, used to be about pursuing progress, pushing mankind forward, creating a better, wealthier world for all. Extinction Rebellion wants the precise opposite. It wants to propel us backwards to the Stone Age. It wants to reverse the most important moment in human history, the Industrial Revolution. It wants to undo that revolution's liberation of mankind from the brutishness and ignorance of life on the land and recreate that old, unforgiving world in which we all ate locally, never traveled, danced around maypoles for fun, and died of cholera when we were 38. He says the sheer backwardness of the Extinction Rebellion was captured when two of its members appeared on Sky News yesterday morning. They complained hysterically about modernity. All of One of them bemoaned all the electricity that's used in a city like London. So the very lighting up and warming of cities, the electricity that powers homes and workplaces and transport systems and life support machines is offensive to these hair-shirted, self-flagellating loathers of arrogant humankind. Switch it all off is their alarmingly immoral cry. I could go on, but I think I want to take a call here. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Good morning, Brian. Hello, Sam. Let's see if I get this straight. Uh, so what we want to do here is we want to go back to the Stone Age, according to these people, and we want to take people back to a time when pollution was even worse because we had to cook over smoky fires and uh, we had to uh, use outhouses and, uh, I mean, how is that supposed to be better than uh, what we have today? Now, now, do we have our problems? Yes, we do. Most of them caused by, uh, you know, some of the pesticides and stuff that we're using on our food. And, and uh, it wouldn't be so bad if we didn't have genetically modified food, for example, stuff like that. What we don't understand is that, is that um, despite all of that, there are a lot of ways in which we're doing much, much better. Um, I mean, even, I mean, today's, uh, in, you know, uh, wood stoves, for example, are cleaner than they used to be, so you still have the best of both worlds. You can uh, still, uh, you know, the one good thing you can say about, you know, the uh, days gone by is that uh, on the flip side, you take the ashes, you put it on your garden, you've got a growing garden. Yeah. But the problem with it is, is that uh, the trade-off was, Look at all the smoke that we had to put up with from chimneys coming, you know, just wood smoke barreling out of chimneys and stuff back in those days when all we had was wood stoves. 
Yeah, I, I know everything I have seen of, uh, for instance, uh, Victorian era England, when coal fired, you know, factories were, were the norm was how gritty and sooty everything was. You know, you look at a working class town like Birmingham and, and then the photographs. I mean, it just it just looked grungy. That's what they had to work with. I, I can't help but think things have been greatly improved, at least in our time. Oh, yeah. And I mean, think about uh, how we used to deal with sanitation back in those days. We had better sanitation than we used to have. Not all is bad today. I mean, can you stick with me? Can you hang with me through the break here? I want to continue this conversation. I think I think you're on the right path here, Sam. We'll take a quick break. We'll check news and we'll be back with Loving Liberty right after this. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I've got Sam on the line with me from Missouri. And we were talking about, uh, well, climate change, the madness of the Extinction Rebellion, an article by uh, Brendan O'Neill on Spiked Online. And Sam, you you were talking about, uh, you know, as 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 much as they try to portray the progress that we've made technologically as as something horrible and earth ending, it actually has made a lot of people's lives better. It seems. Yeah, and I think if it were left to the free market, it could still even be better. Most of the problems that we have are caused by government climbing in bed with the corporations and them all working together and greasing the skids for one another in ways that, w- that could never be done for any of us out there. And I'm not suggesting that it should be. I mean, I always want to do right by the people that I deal with. But uh, but all is not bad. I mean, and there's so many ways that we could change things for the better that nobody wants to talk about. You know, they always want to try to push us into inferior directions. I mean, like, for example, Brian, you want to really get into something to look up. I've always stated... Why, you know, everybody gripes about, uh, you know, uh, magnetic fields and all this kind of stuff and the power grid and all this kind of stuff. And I hear people starting to talk about how bad the power grid is for our health and all this kind of stuff. I said, you know, why do we have clunky power lines and these big high-voltage transformers anywhere? You know, with the technology that is out there, if it wasn't suppressed, we could have thorium reactors serving as power plants in our houses and not even have to have power lines running anywhere where our our homes and businesses could be powered independently. These are things that uh, nobody wants to talk about. Uh, You talked about owning a a car that ran on natural gas for a while. Natural gas is one of the cleanest things out there. It hardly puts out, I mean, about the most you'll see coming out is uh, water vapor when, uh, when, when something powered by natural gas is running. But nobody wants to talk about that. They want to come, They want to push us back in all these inferior directions that actually would pollute worse. And if you want evidence of that, go into these third world countries where people are being suppressed because of uh, the various uh, groups like the United Nations and various others. These people are using dung and whatever else they can find to cook with. Is that what we want for our future? All in the name of saving the environment? Yeah, it's, you know, I know it sounds like I'm morphing into a John Bircher when I say this, but I I really believe much of the modern environmental movement is simply a front 
for uh, a communist ideology. And if, if communist is, is a word that doesn't resonate, then, then I'll say a collectivist ideology. But I, I think communist is more active or, or more accurate in, in the way it describes it, because at its very heart, communism is anti-human. It views us as just objects to be manipulated according to the whim of, uh, you know, whoever's in charge, the vanguard that knows best. And, and that's that's always been the hallmark of communist regimes. And I think that the environmental movement takes a very similar approach. Human beings aren't a blessing. They aren't doing any favors to the earth. We're destroying it. We're a cancer. Therefore, we should be destroyed. Well, as I always remind people, you know, when you start going down their road, don't forget you're one of us, whether you want to be or not. They, so yeah, they just think that they're the ones who are going to be making the call as to, well, we need to get about two-thirds of these people off the planet. Wow, that's yeah. that's never been tried before, like about 80 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the, here's the thing you got to keep in mind. Don't buy into every little thing you hear. Research things, research them well. You know, the days of turning on the 6 o'clock news are over with for getting all your information that you need to know. You have to be a lot more careful with the stuff you consume as far as knowledge. And you have to make sure that you're consuming the right knowledge. Yeah, the environment, should we take care of the environment? The Bible tells us to be good stewards of the environment. So that's, I don't think that's no great shake. But what we're talking about here is not being good stewards of the environment. These are people that are pushing a taxing agenda to tax us into oblivion, including even our breathing, if they could get away with it. That's the thing you have to keep in mind. And do we have problems in our world today? The problems aren't with technology and the things that we have acquired themselves. It's with corruption in our world today that pushes the bad things out there and tries to suppress the good things. There are a lot of good things that the free market could unleash onto the world if it were just allowed to do so and were left alone. Here, here. That's where we need to concentrate. And because governments, I mean, look, is a good case in point. Look at our education system. You know, it's just about channels thanks to the government being involved in it. We have... Uh, drug companies that are pushing drugs with horrible side effects on us and, uh, you know, our medical system, a medical model which is outmoded and doesn't work and, you know, there are ways to, you know, to do nutrition and more discoveries on that front every day. But if the government and the drug companies had their way, all that stuff would be suppressed. So just understand that it's the free market where we really need to be looking because, if, if people are left to innovate and to be left alone and the, and the skid's not being greased for some at the expense of others, uh, this might be a much better world to live in. Hear, hear. Sam, I really appreciate your take on this. God bless. Have a good day. Okay, thank you so much for the call. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to join the conversation. I know the the article that I've shared with you here has, uh, you know, I mean, it's it, it's a little hyperbolic. Brendan O'Neill is is uh, using all the right buzzwords, but he has a point worth considering here and calling it the Extinction Rebellion. I don't think is is necessarily being uh, deceptive. I don't think he's trying to portray these otherwise fine and noble people with a noble cause that's, you know, consistent with uh, the respect for human rights. And I mean, our natural rights. I don't think that uh, that he's guilty of of. Uh, throwing them under the bus for no reason whatsoever. 
I do think he's providing kind of a necessary counter to the easy ride that these uh, environmental or eco-activists get in the media and from political types. I mean, come on, it's like gospel. How many of the uh, Democratic uh, hopefuls for president have towed the line when it comes to, do you believe in climate change? And so They don't want to be seen as a denier. It is like a religion, and there's a religious litmus test. Do you believe in global climate crisis? Do you believe we need a Green New Deal? Most of them have said, yeah, that's what we need, which coincidentally just happens to require, well, lots more government and higher taxes. The real interesting part to me is the idea that, uh, hey, what we need to do is impose a big global tax to get rid of carbon emissions Within the next, I don't even think they want to say the next 12 years or 10 years. They're talking like six years from now. And the people who are making these claims, as Brendan O'Neill points out, are being treated like wise and, and radical defenders of reason and the future. But he says these people are a menace to good sense, to rationality, truth and progress. Their predictions of hellfire, if we don't cut carbon emissions by 2025, are pure bunkum. And so they lie and they spread fear and they disrupt hardworking people's lives. And his advice is, if you see this cult promoting its deathly propaganda on the streets of your city, then give them a piece of your mind. I'm going to stop short of saying, yeah, that's the best thing to do. Go shout him down. But but I get where he's coming from. And the idea that uh, we don't need to convince you the science is settled. I'm sorry, but that's that's just a simple, plain old appeal to authority. If the science was really settled, then they could stop talking about it, right? But they can't. They have to still keep pushing it. So obviously it's not settled. I don't know. It's a crazy time. And it's and, and I heard I heard our friend Sam Bushman on Liberty News Radio talking about uh, this over the weekend with his guest, G. Ed Griffin. For all the talk about climate crisis and, and climate change, you know, there was a time when people believed that the creator of the universe, that God Almighty, would sometimes use natural forces to bring nations to their knees, to bring people to their knees, to humble them, to remind them that they need him. Now, I know the skeptics, the non-believers, oh, if you want to believe in your magical sky friend, yeah, that's fine. But for people who believe in, uh, you know, the biblical accounts of the, the history of the Jews and, and the, the history throughout the New Testament, um, I believe, uh, and, and, and I, I believe in, in other books of Scripture as well that point to the creator of this this universe, the creator of this earth, sometimes can use natural forces, be it whirlwinds, earthquakes, floods, fires, locusts. Those natural forces can sometimes be used to preach lessons that people will not hear any other way. Why should we doubt that such a thing could happen in our time as well? Again, that's for those who believe. That doesn't mean that God hates us. But sometimes we need to be reminded. We're not all that in a bag of chips. All right, we'll take a quick break. Back after these messages. 
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. 801-331-8113. All right, where to go next? I have a lot of really fun topics. In fact, I'm going to tell you this. I'm saving this one for next hour. But uh, one of the things that I found interesting was the question, when will we see the next great food discovery? And I mean like the creation or the discovery of a new kind of food. And I saw some dates here. Ice cream is 2,000 years old. Did you know that? Modern chocolate's been around for almost 200 years. Twinkies for 89 years anyway. We see a lot of advancement in the cooking side of things. I'm just curious what the next great food discovery is going to be. Extra points to whoever says, Soylent Green! If you haven't seen the movie, maybe you should watch that. All right, here's a kind of disturbing story out of Canada. And this plays into the, uh, the current unrest that is sweeping through society regarding gender issues. A Canadian court strips father of rights, allowing teen to transition against his wishes. The story is from intellectualtakeout.org. Nicole Russell is the author. She writes, a 14-year-old girl in Canada will continue with hormone replacement therapy to become a male against her father's wishes. That's because a court in Canada has ruled against her father. A three-judge panel of the British Columbia Court of Appeals, that's the province's highest court, upheld a lower Canadian court's decision to allow the child, who has identified as male since age 11, to continue the treatments. Now, the mother does support the hormone therapy. The child who lives in Vancouver has already begun hormone treatments and desperately wanted to continue them. Eighteen attorneys, including representatives of public health officials, the local school board, the teenager, her mother and her father, participated in the three-day hearing, which has spurred a debate over parental rights, consent, and freedom. Now, the teenager apparently attempted suicide, met with medical professionals, and then pursued hormone therapy to transition from female to male. And though her mother supported this, her father has said the lower court rushed to judgment and was forced to hire attorneys to attempt to halt the progress, the process, rather. The teenager wrote in an affidavit that was read in court, I will be stranded between looking and sounding feminine and looking and sounding masculine. I would feel like a freak. The girl began taking hormones in March, reported she feels amazing and no longer has suicidal thoughts. Now, apparently the lower court's ruling is based on the Infants Act. That's a provision in Canada that gives minors the ability to consent to medical procedures. It says children may consent to a medical treatment on their own as long as the health care provider is sure that the treatment is in the child's best interest and that the child understands the details of the treatment, including risks and benefits. And though the child has only begun hormone treatments, she's already changed her name and birth certificate to reflect that she now identifies as male. The question is not over custody, but whether the father's right to approve this decision override those of a child who can't legally drive. Apparently, father's rights have not fared well. In addition to stripping him of his right to have a say in the child's medical treatments, the lower court also has ordered the father, you knew this was coming, to use the child's chosen pronouns, which are now male. This means that if the father uses his child's birth name or referred to his child as a girl, her biological sex at birth, it would be labeled family violence under the province's Family Law Act. 
The court also gagged the father from speaking about the case to the media. And to add insult to injury, the panel of judges will release written judgments on the case soon and will address the question of whether or not the father's misgendering of his child amounts to abusive behavior. Holy cow. The infant's law aside, the case still stands as a grievous instance of government interference for personal liberty and parental rights, and a dangerous one at that, since it's debatable whether hormone therapy is even the appropriate medical treatment. It's a case about freedom of speech and the freedom to parent, according to Carrie Lindy, the father's lawyer. Carrie told The Guardian it's about the right of a parent to participate in the discussion on the issue. Well, the father and his legal team have cast the case in terms of personal liberties, arguing in court filings, the court's order that he use his child's chosen identity amounts to totalitarian interference. In his filings, the father indicated he was not necessarily opposed to his child's transition from female to male. But apparently dad is arguing that too little is known about the effects of hormone treatment for the decision to be made by a minor. And this seems appropriately cautious, reasonable, and maybe even caring. That the state should support the child's decision to move ahead with experimental treatment and deny her father's simple requests for further information and a measured approach shows just how authoritarian things have become north of the border. It's not a good trend. And it's probably not so far away in this country. I mean, isn't there a case going before the Supreme Court right now that uh, would seek to add the whole gender confusion thing to uh, to our current civil rights laws? It's not going to solve problems. All it's going to do is bring state force to bear in forcing people to participate in something that they may not want to participate in. Now, I have to admit, I'm probably more likely to, to at least consider, well, if the kid's 14 years old, he or she or whatever J's preferred pronouns may be, is in a better position to, to make a decision regarding self-determination than, say, a a toddler or a preteen or, you know, a five or six year old. I still don't like the idea of the state interposing itself in between children and parents. I think that's supposed to be reserved for the most extraordinary circumstances and not just a matter of, well, we must enable the child to have this authority. Um, that's that's going to lead to some interesting unforeseen consequences down the road. But it's a little easier to swallow with someone who's actually, you know, hitting puberty or is is on the verge of young adulthood. I know 14 is pretty young, but, you know, you can find some pretty responsible early teens out there. Not every one of them, but but some. And I think it's something that would have to be examined on maybe a case by case basis. But. I have some real concerns. For these uh, these kids who who go through this. And I don't know that the answer is to, well, you'll clamp down and lock them in their room and throw away the key until they are 18 and then they're on their own. I think they need love and they need support. But I think the enabling that goes along with a lot of this gender identity confusion feeds whatever it is that they're trying to, to work through. And look, I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm probably going to offend people by pointing this out, but... Um, I believe that people who are struggling with gender identity issues 
are, are doing just that. They're fighting a fight of some kind. There's some kind of an internal battle in their lives. And I don't wish them ill, and I'm not judging them by saying that. If I, if I say, well, I think that, uh, you know, there, it may be a type of mental illness. I'm not saying, therefore, you know, they're, they're crazy and nobody should listen to them. I think that they deserve help. They deserve support. But I draw the line at using government to force people to participate in another person's delusion. In my belief... Every one of us is a child of God, and we should show each other that same respect and show each other the kind of love and support that, uh, that we think God would show them. And I know God would show perfect love, regardless of what a person is going through. He will love them unconditionally and perfectly. And I think we should do the best we can to, to do that, to meet that same standard. But that doesn't always mean, therefore, you know, whatever they're, they're thinking, you know, I want to cut off my, you know, parts of my body and take these, these hormone therapies and indulge this, this particular fantasy or belief that I have in the hopes that it will bring me happiness. I mean, over and over I hear, well, the suicide rate is very high among teens who study with this, who, who struggle rather with this gender identity. I don't believe it's because people are saying, ah, are you sure that's what you want to do? Or people are, are hesitant to throw their support behind them that that's why they kill themselves because people treat them like it's like it's something weird or wrong. I think the conflict inside them is what drives that uh, whatever trauma or pain they're trying to work through. And I also believe that there are some times that uh, when we engage in behavior that is uh, unhappy it, it leaves us feeling despair. It leaves us feeling like there is no hope. That's what I would point to as more of a contributing cause to the uh, suicide rate among transgenders than simply people don't approve of me enough. I think that people will approve and approve and approve, get the surgery, and then afterwards they realize, oh my gosh, I've done something I can't reverse. And they still kill themselves. That sounds tragic to me.